Richard Koch, among many business consulting and strategy books. He has written The Star Principle. A star business is one that operates in a high growth market. The minimum is around 10% per year that that market should be growing. The next criterion is that the business should lead this particular high growth market. In a blog post summarizing the SAR Principle book, Richard mentioned that he's lately been adding an additional criterion, which is that the business should have strong network effects. And he gives a few examples of businesses which over the past 100 or or more years have been star businesses. For example, Coca-Cola, which listed in 1888, but newer ones are Amazon, McDonald's and Instagram. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. When it says you're in a high growth market, for how long of a period do you need to track someone that they're going at 10%? Is it just two years or is it a market that's growing over a minimum of 10 years? That's a great question and I'm not actually sure. I'm fairly new to this. I'll get to how I found out about it. This is basically what I know so far. And I guess in terms of how long you will need, you can just say it's up to you to, to find out what, whatever track record period gives you confidence that you're actually in a high growth market. Okay. So it would be yeah, the long-term trend, but also the, there would need to be a logical basis for that trend persisting. Resources to find out more about the Star Principle are his blog, which is richardkosh.net, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-K-O-C-H.net. So I would just put in Google richardkosh.net space Star Principle and you'll get to his Star Principle Simplified blog post. Really, really handy. I just bought the Star Principle on Kindle as well. That's going to be a useful book to read, I think, because it not only will help investors, but also people who want to start businesses. And last episode, we talked about using the Blue Ocean Strategy maybe not during the podcast, but afterwards to design our own business. I think the star principle provides some guidance. Why is it called the star principle? There are plenty of people who are stars and it's pretty clear why. There are also businesses that can be stars and he's saying how they can be. Okay, so it's got nothing to do with like a five-prong attack of five aspects or anything (laughs) like that. No, no, and unfortunately there's no inverted pentagrams either. Uh, why? Why is the SAR principle useful? One reason is that leadership means pricing power. Preference for the products that customers may have means that the business has the power to increase prices without losing customers. It also means higher volume, and this means lower production costs. So combining lower production costs with higher prices quickly produces a profitable situation. A nice example of pricing power was everyone complaining in the past few years, especially when the iPhone X came out, that suddenly iPhone or Apple products were becoming incredibly expensive. But also strangely, they kept being popular. So this is an example of how the market leader, Apple, in a fast-growing market, smartphones, was able to use its pricing power to retrieve more money from its customers' pockets without those customers running away. We have this this combined effect of low production prices and high selling prices or high product prices, plus the compounding effect of being in a fast-growing market. As you explained in episode one, compounding is incredibly powerful. If we've got a profitable leading business that is compounding its position by virtue of being in a fast-growing market, well, then we have a a rising star. He also mentioned pitfalls. And and the main one is that you have to continually make sure that you're the leader. 
because if you're charging high prices, but you no longer have the power of your customers to extract those higher prices, then that higher price can start to work against you. That will then quickly drive your customers away from you. You need to make sure if you're an investor or the one running the business, that the business you're involved in is the leader and do everything you can to maintain or regain that position if it becomes apparent you're not leading the particular high growth niche that you're in. Pretty easy framework to use to filter out companies because there's only a certain number of markets. I, but I guess you could de- define markets quite broadly, couldn't you? You could say market uh, leader in an industry or leader in a industry within a certain country if there's some sort of barriers to other competitors coming into um, your country. So for example, who's the leader in social media platforms? You'd probably say it's Facebook, arguably. Yeah. But you wouldn't say Facebook is the leader in China, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, you do need to be intelligent about your identification of niches. He also makes the comment, and it stands to reason, it's best to be in the founding team of a staff business. Then you can benefit from the vast compounded growth or exponential growth from the staff of that business. So how on earth did I find out about this? Well, it's from Australia's best investing platform called Straw Man, which was founded by Andrew Page. He's got a bit of an inspiring story for us himself. He was a, a ComSec analyst. He had a science background and started as an analyst for ComSec, but he found that he didn't really like the lack of empirical basis for trading decisions, chart reading and other technical analysis or momentum-based decision-making for taking a position in a company. His, his suspicion about all this is kind of reflected in, in the name Straw Man, which comes from philosophy. It, he takes it even further. So when you as a user post an item or something about a particular company, it's called a straw. So you've got different types of straws like a bull case or a bear case or an announcement. He's been very successful starting this platform. There's more than 10,000 users. There's a competition at the moment where you can win $10,000 worth of credit on another actual trading platform called Think Markets. So anyway, check out strawman.com. If you go to the members section of that platform, you'll see there's a user, the top performing user at the moment is called Star. So the annual compounding rate of this account is 125%, albeit only over the 17 months that the account has been operating. So that's not, not very long, but for what it's worth, that's the winning annual compounding rate on that platform at the moment. Did you say 17 months? Um, 17 months. It's only, Yeah, it's only been in existence for 17 months, that particular account. The platform itself has been in existence, I think, for 35 or 36 months, three years. And you were saying that that platform is only for essentially discussion and games. It's not necessarily a platform that you could go on and trade shares on. That's correct. It's a paper trading platform. So each new account gets 100,000 straw dollars, <laughs> if you like but it's still connected to the actual performance of the Australian Stock Exchange or businesses on the ASX. So when you take a position, it is literally the performance from the date that you take that position will reflect the actual performance of that business on the ASX. No, he was able to set that up because if you sell your shares at, I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm assuming that you're getting the actual price that it was at 
at two, uh, two o'clock in the afternoon? No, it's based on the day closing, the closing price of the day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so I came upon the star principle from this account, just looking at portfolio of this account. It has 11 positions and they are in order of weighting from greatest to, to least. Andromeda Metals, Pointerra, Vection Technologies, Harvest Technology Group, Drop Suite, Incanex Healthcare, Mark 7 Technologies, Urbanize.com, Bid Energy, Amero International, and New Zealand Coastal Seafoods. The only position that's gone backwards since he added it was still keeping it in there and not closing that position. Admittedly, I haven't listed any of his close positions there, is New Zealand Coastal Seafoods. The rest of them are all in the green, and Andromeda Metals has gone up 1,500% since he added it. I assume it's a he. Point Terra has gone up 640%. So obviously with that 1,500% gain for Andromeda, pretty much explains why that account is, is the leader. But yeah, basically this shows how straw man can be useful to learn from by studying how others perform so highly. In fact, this user makes it very easy to learn as they mentioned the star principle in their bio and have the book cover as their profile pick. It's yeah an incredibly useful platform. And if you look through the member list, I think it's ordered by highest annual compounding rate to lowest. If you just browse through the users looking for the high performing ones but only the ones have have been members for at least 30 months you'll find 10 or 12 that have been on the platform for 30 months and have had 30 plus percent compounding rate annually over that period you have really high performing users on that site and andrew page if you have that 30 month criterion the founder of the platform is actually the leader i think he's had ranging between 40 to 46 percent compounding rate annually since he started and he's just the oldest account on the platform and i almost can't believe this is available for free and every time i look at it i think well how much longer is it going to be there's an index based on the most broadly held businesses amongst all of the accounts across the whole platform there's a straw man index of the top 15 stocks and that has been compounding at basically 40 percent annually since the site started and that that kind of compounding rate is over the long term has stupendously high outcomes. So I can't possibly see how this will continue to be free. And it shows how there's already 10,000 members after three years. And I can't see how there won't be the biggest mania around this platform that anyone has ever seen, or at least there should be. So at the moment, it's kind of- that lack of attraction might be due to, one, it's young. But the second thing is that it's just a paper trading a platform rather than the real thing and a lot of people might think okay that's all fun and games but at the end of the day i can get on the stock exchange for you know a couple of hundred bucks and be doing the thing real yes but i guess what i'm talking about is as an information source what this has managed to do is produce a compounding rate of 40 plus percent merely for a user who logs in i don't even know if you need to have an account to see the drawman index so basically for free Everyone in the world can see how to extract a 40% compounding rate out of the Australian market. The top user follows the STAR principle, which has been written by this Oxford grad who has a career that's included Boston Consulting Group and and Bain. So I think it has users on there that are informed and that have a solid basis for their uh, approach. Founder of the platform also has incredibly strong performance. So it's also a brave thing to do to put yourself out there like that.
in terms of Andrew Page. When you look at the performance, uh, I've just gone website of Drawman. They had huge growth from inception, in particular from January 2019, they saw rapid growth. And then in February, March, when the whole coronavirus incident started, they had a massive drawdown then, almost getting them back to what the actual uh, ASX itself had performed. And then post-March, it's clawed its way back up. So possibly subject to more volatility whatever they've got in that portfolio. Hell yeah, incredible volatility there. But as Kenneth Marshall says, volatility is not equal to risk. Risk is the possibility of a permanent capital loss. Volatility is just driven by emotions. In this case, it seems that there was a classic excessive emotional reaction from Mr. Market. And those who believed enough and were patient enough saw the fact that there was a solid principle behind the approach, stuck with it. And look, we're, so it's down to 30, 38% compounding rate at the moment because of the latest gyrations in the market or emotional spasm from Mr. Market to do with the elections, the latest wave of the virus and the fact that Trump in order to increase his chances of being re-elected, didn't release more free money into the market, or rather said he'd do more after he got elected, or if he got elected, if I'm reading things right. Alrighty, I'll sign up to it and have a look. Another hero this time of the US market is Jesse Felder. He publishes a weekly newsletter, and one of the items in this week's one was 200 years of drawdowns for the value factor by Mikhail Samanov. He was also interviewed on the Acquirers podcast by another hero of both the Australian and US markets, Tobias Carlyle. So I really recommend chucking Samanov, S-A-M-O-N-O-V, value drawdown Carlyle. C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E into Google, that should get you to the interview. Mikhail is quite a nice guy, really dedicated and a real example to us all. So what on earth is the value factor? Quoting here from Mabusen, who is an analyst working for Morgan Stanley, he writes that value investing is buying something for less than it is worth. In other words, you buy when expectations are too low and sell when expectations are full or too high. This is what most active managers try to do. Discounted future free cash flow determines value and shorthands such as multiples are only useful only to the extent that they accurately capture value. They rarely do. So value investing is pretty straightforward. You're looking at the true value of a business and you're trying to buy it when Mr. Market, emotional investors that the market is populated with, have for some reason missed the facts of the business and have assigned a price to the business which is lower than its actual value. There are many participants in the stock market. One breed of participant is the so-called quantitative investor. This is basically someone who takes a, a statistical approach to investing. They'll sit there with a vast database of all the financial data, price data for businesses, like preferably all the businesses in the market. And they do a bunch of calculations to automatically lift out whole groups or sets of businesses that satisfy criteria. So it's basically the database analysts approach to investing with a database containing all the balance sheets, cash flow statements, income statements for all the businesses. With that at your disposal, you can construct portfolios that would satisfy 
a value investor. What you can do is you can categorize the market into three sections. The bottom third, which is undervalued, the middle third, which is around about right, and the top third, which is overvalued. The bottom third we'll call value stocks. The top third is often called glamour stocks or, or growth stocks. These are often the ones that everyone's heard of that they have a lot of certainty about or that they're willing to overpay for because the performance of all the growth of these businesses offers so much certainty. So the value factor will take a long position or buy the shares of businesses that are in the bottom third, the value stocks, and they will take a short position in the glamour stocks or the top third. That is the value factor. A long, a long short, are they? Yeah, Mikhail Samanoff, his, his research is basically about the performance of this value factor over an incredibly long period. How did they figure out what companies were in the bottom third and what companies were in the top third, especially for that data that was 150, 200 years old? That's really hard for me to explain. I don't understand it well enough to, to explain it confidently on the podcast. I'm not going to try and do it because I'm going to misinform people. What you should do is go to twocenturies.com. That's the word two, T-W-O, centuries.com, all one word. Or you could dump into Google 200 years of value investing drawdowns. That might take you to the blog post. But if you just click around on the blog of twocenturies.com, you'll see Mikhail's uh, basis and a technical sort of explanation for how he wrangled three sets of data to produce a 200 years of performance of this value factor back to 1825. I'm going to look at, it, at that website now, and it seems to indicate that determined value, they use dividend yields. So they say that while they admit dividend yield is not necessarily always a true indicator of value, it's what they've had to use going back into the 19th century. Place. Yeah, that's because they didn't have the performance of actual businesses. And also he, he, in the interview with Toby, he mentioned how someone actually lost a bunch of the computer punch card data at one point. So they, they used to have much more, more detail on a lot of these businesses, but it was lost. So he's saying that looking at dividend yields as original value factor is still informative today. That answers my question of what they thought were a reasonable indicator of what was of value and what wasn't. And your point is that we need to treat this with some caution because they've had to use proxy indicators for value. They haven't had literally the cash flow statement, income statement and balance sheet and the stock price for each individual business on every stock market back to 1825. Yeah, with some qualifications, we essentially have a somewhat hazy and fuzzy window to look through back two centuries to gain a feel for the performance of this value factor. Value investing, everybody sort of talks about, and there are various cults to do with certain people who have performed very well as value investors over the years, which I will try to not mention as my small vain effort to not contribute further to these cults. What cult? <laughs> I sort of talked about it in the last podcast. Does it rhyme with Muppet? <laughs> Yeah, let's call, let's just call the, the cult members Muppets. Anyway, about a guy who should have a cult around him because of all the effort he put in and the, the, the amazing insight that he offers us, continuing about Semenov, 
he talks about drawdowns. This is the idea of underperformance or a, a reduction in growth over a certain period of time. It's only time that the market has gone down by a significant amount. He does highlight a number of 50, 59% drawdowns. Yeah, it's from a previous peak in a blog post called 200 Years of Value Investing Drawdowns and also was included in Jesse Felder's newsletter for value factor drawdowns from 1825 to 2020. What he's got on this chart is a 50% drawdown, so 50% reduction from the previous peak in 1841. In 1862, there was a 49% drawdown. In 1904, there was a 59% drawdown, which began predictably somewhere around the start of the Great Depression. And then from 1932, we had no major drawdowns. There was one actually sort of in 1938, 1940 or something. There was another one in something like, okay, so that looked like the 2000 tech bubble crash. Really, the next major one was in 2020, right now, a 59% drawdown. The last 59% drawdown was basically hundred more than 100 years earlier in 1904. So why do we care about this? Why are we excited about this? Well, there's another little note on his chart. Graham Newman, who were two famous uh, value investors, Benjamin Graham was mentioned in the last episode by Ben, the author of The Intelligent Investor. Graham and Newman had a fund, which from 1936 to 1956 had a compounding rate of 20% per year, which is incredibly high. Nowhere near as good as the straw man index, of course. (laughs) So why has he pointed out Graham and Newman on that chart? Well, it's because they started at the bottom of a drawdown. So I hope people's eyes are lighting up at the moment. Mine certainly are, because what are we at the moment? We're at the bottom of a once in a century drawdown, according to Samanoff's work here over the past 200 years. Well, you think we're at the bottom. We could still have further Fair enough. So if you overall, you would prefer to start your value investing career at the bottom of the biggest drawdown in history, rather than somewhere near the top where the market's bobbling along and expectations are high for the value factor. It does. It's um, a pretty outstanding graph. It's quite remarkable how much it's gone down in 2020. But there have been some previous drawdowns that you can see in, in the, if you look at the last 40 or 50 years in that graph, going back to, looks like there was pretty significant drawdown in 1976. Another one in the early 1987 looks like that's probably that drawdown there and then in the late 1999 one you can see that quite apparent on the graph and then i'm just trying to identify i think you can see the global financial crisis where it's gone significantly down and then it never seemed to really recover after that 2008 9 period and it's continued to go down all the way to 2020 so Yep, that's right. It, it's been really tough and been a savage drawdown without recovery. And the same sort of thing happened from around about 1886 to 1904. That whole 18-year period was really tough to deal with for, for value investors too because there was no respite. There, okay, there was a little bit of a spike 
Ike perhaps in 1901. But yeah, so there was basically a savage long-term drawdown to that 59% bottom in 1904. Similarly, yeah, for the, the drawdown to now, there's been, yeah, no respite since basically 2006 sort of dawned on me that was a big signal to start turning rocks as feverishly as possible as a value investor. I basically started ranting on Twitter yesterday. So I, again, to mention our fantastic Twitter handle, Behafen, B-E-H-A-F-I-N. I, so you post I any of these charts? Yeah, so I put this chart, the drawdown chart. I also put a link to the interview with Toby Carlyle. So I did a bit of extra digging. I came across an article or a white paper or some publication at least from the great O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, which was founded by Jim O'Shaughnessy, who was the author of What Works on Wall Street. Jim O'Shaughnessy is basically one of the famous quantitative investors out there. And he's also been interviewed by Toby Carlyle, incredibly inspiring man. He's also humble enough and decent enough on Twitter to respond to average people like us occasionally. I recently checked out the analytics on our account. The top tweet uh, in terms of impressions for us was 22,000 when I just mentioned him and I think he liked the tweet that I made and suddenly we had an order of magnitude more than the average impressions. So that speaks to how much of an impact Jim O'Shaughnessy has made on FinTwit and the broader, I would say, global or at least Western world investing community. Anyhow, so what did O'Shaughnessy Asset Management say? So that they've got a nice title, Value is Dead, Long Live Value. So that's interesting to see that this idea of value investing dying, the society's sort of uh, production of these kinds of headlines or, or this idea o- over time. The last time this happened really was in the tech bubble up to the end of 1999, 2000. There were a lot of people saying that value investing was dead then as well, and they were disparaging Warren Buffett because he hadn't bought any tech stocks. Oh, whoops, I wasn't supposed to mention him. What do we know that happened right about the time people were saying value investing was dead? Well, the tech bubble burst in 2000. Amazon, as I mentioned in the episode in interviewing the pilot, Amazon stock during the tech bubble crash, dropped 90 plus percent over two years to the end of 2000 or, or 2001. So it's interesting how market manias or, or manias coincide with people prematurely declaring that value is dead. I don't know if this, the title for this O'Shaughnessy Asset Management white paper was written sort of with tongue in cheek and an eye to this idea. I just wanted to mention that. So in the executive summary of this paper, which addresses the similar issue of phenomenon of this value factor drawdown that Mikhail has illustrated so well, they've made a few points in the executive summary. So I'm just going to read it. The fourth revolution was the age of oil, automobiles, and mass production, where manufacturing of cars and their components, oil, steel, and rubber, flourished. Conversely, railroads and utilities, the infrastructure from the third revolution, declined amidst lower demand, a financial crisis, and increased regulation. Increased regulation is something we'll come to, we'll talk a bit more of soon. The next point they make is that the fifth revolution is information technology, where the internet and mobile computing take hold while financials declined amidst a financial crisis, followed by heightened regulation. Again, regulation is a phenomenon here. So in both periods, collapses of financial capital in utilities from 1926 to 1941 and financials from 2007 to 2018 had significant impact on the value portfolios. The next point, technological revolutions come in long waves. 
but eventually stabilize in deployment of new socioeconomic norms. Value investing has historically outperformed after we transition from the turning point. Yeah, I encourage you to uh, chuck in Google value is dead, long lived value plus, you know, OSAM or something on the end. And you'll Sorry, get to what, this. what is the turning point? What is that? Okay. So the final point of the executive summary was technological revolutions come in long waves, but eventually stabilize in deployment of new socioeconomic norms. Value investing has historically outperformed after we transition from the turning point. Mm. And the reason that I, I highlighted the, the role of or the participation in this whole process of regulation is so that we can start to use that as a signal to begin to look at essentially build the case for us coming out of the 59% hole, drawdown hole that we're in. So I'm starting to build a case here, right? So we've, we've got this two centuries of value factor data that Kale's put together. We've got four drawdowns prior to the current one of 40% plus, and we've got two, the current one and one in hundred more than 100 basically 100 years ago, 1904, at a 59% drawdown level. Mm. This is the first, uh, and we also know from history that some of the most famous value investors, for example, Graham and Newman, had incredible careers when they started them at the bottom of one of these drawdowns. That's my first point. My second point is that a technological revolution happening at the moment, as Ashwani C Asset Management or OSAM have said, so let's look at some of the evidence for our technological revolution. It's basically information technology. Everybody has the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in their pocket. We've all got supercomputers. We've got computers that are capable of not only sending one rocket to the moon, but probably you could administer the entire Apollo space program from your friggin' smartphone. That's how powerful they are. Let's have a look, however, at what could cause regulators to step in as one of the signs of a change that OSAM has identified? What might make society via its regulators begin to change its attitude towards this latest technological revolution? Well, as you mentioned, Ben, cell phones are worse than drink driving in terms of driver safety. So there's an article from New Scientist saying driving simulator experiments by researchers at the Transport Research Laboratory found drivers talking on mobile phones had 30% slower reaction times than those who had been drinking and 50% slower times than sober participants. So that's let alone people looking at their phones and texting which you regularly see. What we've got is high mass, high velocity objects that we're sitting in transporting ourselves around, being driven by people whose attention has been diminished more than drink driving. Okay, so in terms of things that is, that is gonna make regulators start to sit up and pay attention to something new in society that needs to be regulated, I reckon we've got a flashing light here. Let me talk about another one. So if you go to googlescholar.com and you put in just smartphone space addiction, what you get is 46,000 results. And I've signed up for a, an alert from Google Scholar every time a, any article relating to smartphone addiction comes up. I'm getting new articles or new research, new papers at least once a month. What is Google Scholar? It's basically the world's scientists it's the output of the world's scientists 
So we can say that, you know, the world's scientific output amongst that, it's dropping out a new science paper or experiment or some sort of investigation about the effects of smartphone addiction once a month. What do regulators often do? Well, they pay attention to what the scientists are saying. What's the next item? Oh, well, actually, there have been real investigations already by regulators in the US. There's been a Senate inquiry about monopolies in uh, by tech companies. And there have also been House of Representatives members have done inquiries as well. Both of them have basically said that there are monopolies amongst tech companies and they need to be broken up as a result. So we not only have things that drive regulators to act, we actually have regulators already doing inquiries and acting and issuing recommendations that action needs to be taken. And it's not only in the US, but European regulators are also saying that there are tech company monopolies that need to be broken up in Australia too. Basically, they were pointing out that news companies weren't making enough money through advertising. Yeah, Reading news articles, posts. paying paying the companies for newspaper companies pay them for their content exactly so um, yeah it's we, definitely we, becoming it's definitely we're well past the stage of any of this stuff being new technology it's part of our lives it's everywhere we go everyone's using it and that's part of the reason why uh, it'll need to be regulated or if not regulated established in a way that is less harmful to people. They're going to have to somehow make these mobile phones not be able to be used in terms of texting while you're driving. There's going to be some option to make them less addictive. Yeah, uh, exactly. I've got, we were talking a bit too. Many people use the smartphone even on the toilet. Like I reckon there are people who spend a lot more time on the toilet than they usually would because they take their smartphone with them. So that's it's another sign of how addictive we're becoming. It's changing behavior. I heard a story about people actually taking their mobile phone in the office to the toilet as a break from the office to get away from the computer and to get away from, from work rather than going outside for a smoko. There you go. So that's another distinctive change in behavior, but it's, so it's from one chemical addiction to a, a cognitive or behavioural addiction, which is interesting. So I, I get where your thesis is going. It's basically saying we're in a, a moment in time where value seems to be very cheap and there's some other indicators to suggest that things are going to change for value. It's going to go up. I just, yeah, we've had a massive technological revolution. It's the digitization of life. I want the entire world developing a digital mirror. How does it tie in with first book that you talked about, which was the new STAR methodology. How does that fit within this framework? Because you pointed out at the start, the STAR uses essentially three criteria. One, high growth market. Two, it's got to be a leader. And three, it's got to have a strong network. I would consider that to get it, be in a high growth market, you're not in a value company then. Yeah, typically the glamour stocks are not Our stars. Value. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how how often my use of the extremely simplistic star principle framework will intersect with something from the value factor universe, if you like. If you were going to follow that thesis along and, and invest in value stocks, there are index funds that target just value companies, aren't there? Like Vanguard, yeah. an ETF that 
just targets value companies. Is that correct? And doesn't Toby have one as well? Yeah, Toby has one called Zig, which has a quant basis for the fund, just the enterprise value to operating income multiple, which in our framework from Kenneth Marshall should be seven or less with or without cash and cash equivalents. I don't think Toby's book, The Aquarius Multiple, recommends a particular multiple of operating income to enterprise value to qualify as something that he would buy. But the lower that multiple, the better. Do you know when he established that fund? Because I've just gone on the Yahoo Finance and I see that when I go onto the max chart, it goes back to May 15th, 2019. A year and a half old. Yeah, and it hasn't done well since inception. In trading view, it's down uh, 8% since inception. But it's come off a low like everything in March. It's up basically 12%. It's up 8% since the, around about 10%, say, since the March low. There's a, a sound theoretical basis behind the stocks in that ETF. And if you want to find out more about it, read the Acquirers Multiple or search for Tobias Carlyle. He's a, another inspiring dude for us finance nerds. Now that we've set the scene, we've looked at 200 years of history of the performance of the value factor, and we've seen how there can be extraordinarily painful and lengthy drawdowns as we're in right now. We've also talked about how there have been some incredibly successful investing careers from the bottom of drawdowns. For example, Benjamin Graham. We described the current technological revolution. We've also covered how participants in society, regulators that can signal the end of or a transition from the growth related to a particular industrial revolution and the transition to um, that becoming the norm in society and also how the excesses of a particular revolution may need to be controlled somehow. We've covered some of the evidence of these excesses in the form of addiction, car crashes, and how those excesses have led to actual attention from regulators. And next, we're going to talk about expectations and the role of intangible investments. And that's an article that was, or a white paper, as you say, which was written by Michael Malbusen, and he's also the professor at Columbia University. So we'll see you next time.